Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts and my heart with the word of the Lord in prayer. It's good to be back here this Sunday. It's good to see some of you who um, have had to sit out a little bit due to illness and all the other things of this crazy COVID season. And uh, yet the Lord's been faithful to keep you and bring you back and we get to see you and it's just a joy to be together in the household of the Lord and for those families who aren't able to be with us this morning and you're watching by streaming, we just want to let you know we love you and we miss you and um, by all means, um, please keep us posted as to how you're doing and we'll still try and reach out and see what you need. Well, this morning we are back into um, the God-breathed words of Matthew's gospel. And as we've said, I think many times before, Matthew was writing to us to help us appreciate and understand who Jesus is according to God's word. As Matthew writes that, he's also writing for the benefit of those first century Jewish believers who increasingly are receiving persecution and undergoing difficulty. And many of them sort of questioning, did we do the right thing? Are we on the right track? What's going on? And Matthew's reminding them we can only understand who we are and what our calling is if we first understand who Jesus is and what his calling was and is. It's through Christ that we understand who we are as a people and as a household of God. And as we come to Matthew 3, it's the ministry and message of John the Baptist that the Holy Spirit uses mightily to gather and prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom as has been promised in God's word. And I'm going to ask if we could perhaps have my first PowerPoint slide for this morning, please. Um, And so John the Baptist is being used by the Holy Spirit to bring the people and to get them ready and to prepare their hearts for the coming of their king, the king of God's word. And coming to that wilderness of Judea to see and hear John the Baptist and to be baptized by him in the Jordan River are Jews who have come from all across Judea and all across the surrounding region. And this includes a delegation of Pharisees and Sadducees from the religious and political leaders of Judea. And as you read the account in Acts, Dr. Luke's account in Acts, and you read Acts 13, and you read Acts 19, and you read the Apostle Paul's account of John the Baptist and what John the Baptist said repeatedly, There is some suggestion of the possibility that among that delegation sent by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the wilderness of the Jordan to inspect and to see whether John the Baptist's ministry is legit, well, there's the strong possibility that there is a young man named Saul of Tarsus who is an up-and-coming Pharisee who is a pupil and disciple of one of the leading rabbis in the Sanhedrin, Gamaliel, and who is and has been and continues to be until Acts chapter 9, the watchdog of the Pharisees. And then as you read gospel, the gospel of John chapter 1, the apostle John points out that among those who are gathered in the Jordan in the wilderness and are participating in John's baptism are a group of fishermen from Galilee, Andrew, and his brother Peter, and Philip, and his brother Nathaniel, and these also are gathered there in the wilderness, come to hear John the Baptist. And John the Baptist commands them all, without exception. And his commandment is simple. 
to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How are the people of God to prepare for the coming of their Messiah? They're to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And why? Why are they to do this? Well, John the Baptist explains in verse 11. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And it's after John the Baptist makes this God-breathed proclamation that Matthew writes in verse 13, Then Jesus came. And what follows is an entrance and arrival that is unlike other in the, any other in the history of the world. It is a divine entrance and a divine arrival that shows us who Jesus is and it shows us what Jesus has come to do according to God's word. And it's worth considering and paying close attention because we think in our church when people come in on a Sunday morning, is it clear what we are here to do? And is it clear who we are in our places of work for our co-workers when they see us and they get to know us? Is it clear who we are and what we have come to do in our communities and in our neighborhoods? Is it clear who we are and what we've come to do? And as we gather as the household of God on a Sunday morning, is it clear who is here and what he has come to do? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes it clear with no uncertain terms who He is and what He's come to do. If you have your Bibles, please look with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, that's John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the ancient Near East, but you could say also today, the arrival of a great king or a leader was not a random event. They were like weddings. Every detail was meticulously planned. And for a couple of purposes. From the location and to the reception, every detail had a purpose. And that was to show who this person is who's coming and making this entrance and what they have come to do. And we know this obviously as presidents celebrate with the inaugural celebration in the seat of power in Washington, D.C. with all the VIPs who gather. But we also know that from weddings, right? When we have weddings... And I stand at the front and I proclaim and you hear that music. And I get the chance to hear 
and I see and I'm able to say, all rise for the bride, right? Nobody's looking at me, right? And as that young lady walks down and she's in the white dress and she's escorted by her father and there's the long carpet that goes down, there's no question, young men, men who are going to be married, there's no question whose day this is. This isn't our day. According to the Western tradition, this is the bride's day. And it's not Tupac, all eyes on me. It's all eyes on her, right? That's where you're supposed to be. Because it's all, this entrance is all letting us know whose special day this is, why they've come, and what they're here to do. Now hopefully all you premaritals, as you go through the premarital process, you'll see we break from that tradition. We say this is Christ's day. And it's a day about Him. And there's a lot fewer disappointments when we see that it is the Lord's day and we're celebrating His gospel and the love He's given. But nonetheless, the the point being, and we see this in just about every aspect of important people in our lives, there's, there's no confusion with these entrances and these arrivals about who the important person is and what they've come to do. And in Matthew three thirteen through 17, Matthew shows us the arrival and entrance, not of a bride, but a groom. And it is the official arrival and entrance of God's promised Messiah coming to his bride for the first time. It is an arrival and entrance that leaves no ambiguity or confusion as to who he is and what he has come to do. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Jesus is the Lord of God's word. This is who he is. And this informs what he's come to do. Jesus is the Lord of God's word. Now, as I've shared with many of you, I met my wife on a setup. I guess that's a cultural term, a setup, right? It sounds like you're getting set up to get mugged or robbed or something. We, we got set up. We had mutual friends who introduced us. I had not seen her before. What I found out through email was that she lived in Cerritos and I lived in West LA. And so I thought, where am I going to meet my... I didn't know she was going to be my wife. Where am I going to meet this young lady for the first time? And I looked at the map and I looked at West LA and I looked at Cerritos and I saw that right in between if I was going to meet her halfway and men, you shouldn't meet your wives halfway. You should go all the way to them. My bad, okay? But as I looked and said, okay, where are we going to meet halfway? Right in the middle between Cerritos and West LA was South Central and Compton. And I actually kind of yelped and said, okay, well, where are the places? I've got no problem with South Central and Compton. But... You know, I also didn't want her parents to think I was up to something other than, you know, whatever. Anyways, nonetheless, so we ended up and found this place in Manhattan Beach, okay? And in Manhattan Beach, there was a really cute place. It was a Belgian cafe and bakery called Le Pain Quotidien, which is the daily bread, which I had no idea, but it'd be fitting for us, nonetheless, and and had all the things that I loved. And it was a very, very cute place. Well, why did I choose that? Because I wanted something sweet and cute for the first time I encountered. I wanted to make a good impression. Okay? Well, in verse 13, Matthew points out Jesus' arrival, if you will, his first date or his first meeting with his bride, by design, involves two places that are not terribly cute. 
In fact, by the standards of scripture in first century Palestine, they would be referred to, the technical term is sketchy. The urban term is ghetto. And these two places are Galilee, of which Nazareth is a suburb, or part of that Galilee region. And the other portion is the wilderness by the Jordan River. It's referred to as the Jordan, but they're referring to the east side, probably of the Jordan River, where the Gentiles and the pagan tribes were, the Ammonites and the Moabites and all of those folks on the Jordan. On the other side of the promised land. It's not the good side of the street, it's the bad side of the street. And this is likely where John the Baptist, most scholars like John the Baptist, was performing his baptisms. And in both the Old Testament and New Testament, Galilee, and this includes Nazareth, and the wilderness around Judea were two places that most respectable and religious Jews tried to distance themselves from. This is not where you purchased a home to raise your family. This is the place where you were sent in politics and religion for your career to die. Why is that? Because they had a history of being unclean and God-forsaken places where no one wanted to go. And if you ever have that blessing of going with Lighthouse San Diego and doing that tour with Dr. Grisanti in Israel, and you get that chance to go there, you will see for yourself. There are dirt, there are rocks, and there is brush, and there is scrub, and it's a far cry from Hawaii or the place you want to take your wife on a honeymoon. You begin to realize how much the Lord loves the children of Israel and how much he loves the world, that he chose this place would be the place where he would come and make himself known. We worship a God who's not about us being on our best. We worship a God who in love and grace and compassion comes to his people in their place of brokenness to show who he is and what he's come to do. And in the Old Testament, Galilee and Nazareth was a place of apostasy. It was a place of exile. It was a place of spiritual darkness. It's the area where the tribes began to compromise and worship other idols. And they used to violate the covenant by marrying and intermarrying with Gentiles and worshiping their gods. And so the people from that area and those regions were known as being sketchy, but also making alliances and compromising and trampling upon the covenant of God. And it was also the region and place, as a result, where God kept his promise. They were among the first who were taken into exile, into Assyria, and into Babylon. And as you read 2 Kings 9-11 and Isaiah 9-1, you see the portrayal in the Old Testament And by the New Testament, their reputation was the same or worse. John 1.46, Nathan says, or excuse me, Nathaniel says to his brother Philip, Can anything good come of Nazareth? Can anything good come of Nazareth? And that lets you know what even the Galileans thought about Nazareth. Nazareth was the worst of that particular area. And then in John 7.52 The chief priests and the Pharisees say the same thing about Galilee, how it's unclean. They make that point, can any prophet come from Galilee? And then we consider the area of the Jordan River. 
and the area of the wilderness around the Jordan. Well, in Scripture, this is the place of God's curse and condemnation. It's the place which is just above Sodom and Gomorrah. It's where Israel wandered for 40 years. It was their place of shame and failure before the Lord. And by the New Testament, it is still a sketchy place where criminals and fugitives and crazy monks go to dwell. And the question on every first century Jew's mind is why would any king, why would any true king, why would any true Messiah choose to live in Nazareth? And why would they choose to make the Jordan the place of their entrance or arrival or their first meeting or their first date with God's people? And for Matthew, the answer is simple. And the answer is found in God's word. In Genesis, the wilderness is the consequence of Adam and Eve's refusal to trust the Lord and his word. God gives Adam and Eve the Garden of Eden. He fills it with fruit trees. It is a place where significant rivers flow and it is watered and it is plush and it is filled with good things. But after they sin, the curse is that the ground will only yield thorns and thistles. A wilderness comes into the world as a consequence of the sin and it serves as a picture illustration. As Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and sent into the wilderness... That being separated from the life and love of God brings only barrenness and only just this place where there is an absence of life. And it becomes a symbol for the curse and consequence of our sin. But then in Exodus 3, the wilderness is where the Lord comes and he makes himself known to a murderer and a fugitive and a fugitive shepherd named Moses. And he does so through a burning bush. And then in Exodus 15, the wilderness is where the Lord meets with those who by faith have left everything in Egypt, and they've left Pharaoh as their king in order to follow him, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, where they've left everything to follow him, And it's there in the wilderness that the Lord gives them his covenant. It's there in the wilderness where the Lord meets with this people who he has redeemed and saved out of the bondage of slavery. Then you come to Deuteronomy. And it's in Deuteronomy, the wilderness is the place, especially the wilderness right across from the Jordan River. It's the place where the second generation of the children of Israel are gathered. And they are gathered there where the Lord keeps them waiting before they come into the promised land in order to repent and renew their covenant. Deuteronomy, second law. It is the second or renewed covenant where that second generation, their parents have died in the wilderness. And they come and Moses puts the covenant again before them and says, will you by faith trust in the Lord? Will you believe in him? Will you say I do? Will you be his bride? Will he be your husband? Will he be your Lord? And will you be his people? And the people say I do. And it's there at the river Jordan in the wilderness where they wait for a man named Joshua, a servant of the Lord. The Lord is salvation to bring them across the Jordan and into the promised land. And then as you walk through the Psalms and the Prophets, 
You'll see repeatedly how they mention that after Israel, after Israel repents, if they are willing to turn from their sin, if they're willing to humble themselves, if they're willing to seek the face of the Lord, the Lord promises to come to them to forgive their sins, to heal their wounds, to be their God, But here's the beauty. He will come and meet them in their place of brokenness. He will come and meet them in their place of shame. He will come and meet them in their place of condemnation. And he will wash them. And he will clean them. And he will heal their wounds. And he will restore them to life. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news. There's no Old Testament. That's the bad news. New Testament. Here's the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of God's word. And it's contrary, brothers and sisters, to all the religions of the world and the world that we live in. We live in a world that if you're broken and you're weak or you're struggling, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The world of finance. You got problems? Beg, borrow, and steal and do whatever you can to save enough money to do that business to get ahead, to get your kids an education, to send them to an Ivy League school so that they can go and be something. Islam. You need to make that pilgrimage to Mecca. You need to go to God. You need to climb the mountain. You need to clean yourself up. You need to do all the right things and hope He's pleased with you. Buddhism. Go to the temple. Do the chanting. Do the meditation. Look within yourself. All the things that we need to do. Even within the Roman Catholic Church, you look at all those pilgrimage sites. You look at Lourdes, you look at all the different shrines where you see all these crippled people who have to climb up these stairs in order to get close and try and come to the presence of God so that in the moment of their brokenness they can just reach out and get close enough so that perhaps they might be healed. And you walk through the Old Testament and you see the Lord and you see the promises of the Lord. He says, no, I'm not like that at all. Those are all those other gods who you worship. If you turn to me, if you cry to me, if you trust in me as your only hope of salvation, if you remember my promises and words, I will come to you in your place of brokenness and condemnation. I will come to you in your darkness and I will bring you light. So you see Isaiah 51, verse 1 through 3. Isaiah says to the people, he says, listen to me. This is the Lord. Listen to me. You who seek the Lord. He's calling them to repent. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Why? Verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion, and he makes her wilderness like Eden. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Those are the ideas of celebration, wedding celebration. Where's it going to happen? Well, the Lord repeatedly tells them, I'm going to meet you in the wilderness. And so we see, brothers and sisters, when Jesus comes from Galilee to the wilderness, to the Jordan, by the river Jordan, before the promised land, it's not by accident. He's coming to their place of condemnation and curse and brokenness to wash them and to heal them and to restore them as his bride. Why? 
because he is the Lord and he's not like us. This is why Jesus has come into the Judean Galilee. Because according to God's word, this is the Lord's promise. And this is who the bride of Christ is. They are the people who have gathered together for a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to plead for their desperate need for a new life and for the mercy of the Lord to be washed by Him. And you know what? The Lord has heard them. And He has come to do what only He can do. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Jesus is the servant king who has come to do what we cannot. Jesus is the servant king who has come to do what we cannot. In verse 13, Matthew points out the very first thing that is on Jesus' agenda. When you think of a president taking office, everybody pays attention to the first thing that he does. What's on the top of his agenda? What has he come to do? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. He has come to the wilderness in Judea, to the Jordan River, to see John. And to be baptized by John, along with all these Galilean fishermen, along with all these soldiers, along with all these tax collectors, along with all these prostitutes, along with all these sinners and prodigal sons of Israel. And he has come to undergo their baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's come to be part of their public proclamation of sinfulness and shame before God. He's come to participate in their very public plea to be washed of their sinfulness and their shame by God's mercy and grace. And for John the Baptist, who's filled with the Holy Spirit and is a prophet of the Lord, who recognizes Jesus as being the Messiah, who recognizes Jesus as the one who is mightier than he, whose sandals he is unworthy to carry, the Holy One of Israel come to bring God's glorious kingdom and God's reign to Israel. This makes absolutely no sense for John the Baptist. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful about being presumptive about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. If John the Baptist can be confused and needs to listen by faith and hear what Jesus has to say, We too, even more so, need to be cautious about our presumptions. This makes absolutely no sense to John the Baptist. The suggestion is offensive to John the Baptist. This is not right. It violates John's conscience. It would be a little like the President of the United States, or maybe John MacArthur visiting your home. And then offering to clean your toilets and sink. Some of you, my boys thought that that would be a good idea. But I personally would be embarrassed. Right? We're the ones who need to serve you. We're the ones who need to be cleaning your toilets. And who would be privileged to do so. But Matthew shows us John's reaction in verse 14. It says, John would have prevented him. And this is the best the English language can do to communicate to us that John is repeatedly, not once, repeatedly ongoing in an agitated manner 
protesting to what Jesus is doing, and perhaps even physically standing in the way and preventing Jesus from proceeding to go to the river to be baptized. John the Baptist says to Jesus, I myself emphatically need to be baptized by you. It's a language of urgency that John the Baptist uses here. I myself need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John's saying to Jesus, this is backwards. This is upside down. This is all wrong. And John's protest comes because John knows who Jesus is, or at least has some awareness. John knows that according to God's word, Jesus is the king. John knows that John the Baptist is supposed to be the slave and the servant who's supposed to be washing Jesus' sandals. John the Baptist is merely the servant who should be cleaning up after Jesus. John also knows exactly what baptism is or what his baptism is according to God's word. It's not high praise. It's not an affirmation of a good life. It's not an affirmation that you are pleasing to God. We get this confused. Many folks, when we go, when we used to go and do outreach on San Jose campus, folks would say, well, I really need to get baptized. And you talk to them and you hear and you realize in their mind, baptism makes you a good person. Brothers and sisters, baptism does not make you a good person. Baptism is an affirmation that your life is not right before the Lord. You cannot save yourself. You are not pleasing. The summation of your life is an offense to the Lord. And therefore, what you need and you're pleading for is the forgiveness and mercy of the Lord. That's John's baptism. It's the very opposite. And this is the very reason why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were reluctant to be baptized by John. They were fine coming out. They wanted to check out and see what this was. Where everybody was coming and hearing. But as far as visibly repenting. That would be an affirmation. That they were not right with the Lord. They weren't willing to do that. We know the scriptures. We know the law. We offer the sacrifices in the temple. We can't say we're bad people. We're going to lose all of those things. But. We're also doing all these good things for the Lord. We're good to go. And similarly, brothers and sisters, we see how often with professing Christians, people who are a member at a church or they serve somewhere, how offended they can get when there's a suggestion that perhaps they need to repent. Or they need to repent of a specific sin. Or they need to come to the Lord. Well it becomes an offense. We don't want to admit it publicly. That we're not right with the Lord. We want the Lord's praise. And we want the Lord's validation. We want the church's praise. And the church's validation. We want the pastor's praise. And the pastor's validation. We don't want the shame. And so we conceal our sins. We die in quietness. We wither as Psalm 32 shares with us. Because we think if we just hang on, it'll go away. Well, John the Baptist is aware that that is neither the remedy nor is it the need. He's aware that what we need 
is to be humbled by the Lord. Just like his command says to young men, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. If you want to be really humbled by the Lord, then exalt yourself before him and he will humble you in due time. Well, John the Baptist protests to Jesus and Jesus' reply in verse 15 to John the Baptist is, let it be so now. Let it be so now. And the implication of Jesus' statement, let it be so now, temporarily, the implication is John is not wrong. It is not right for the Holy One of Israel and the Messiah to receive the humility and the shame and the condemnation that we deserve. And yet, according to God's word, this is necessary for now. Why? Because this is what the Lord has come to do. And this is what the Lord must do for His bride. And this is what He has explained to His children throughout the entire Old Testament. He must take His bride's humiliation. He must take her shame. He must take her condemnation so that she might be right before his father and so that she might be fit for him to marry. He has come to do what we cannot. He has come to make us right with God. And so he has come to walk with his bride through her repentance so that she will not have to walk alone. Because she cannot walk alone. Brothers and sisters, there is never, there is never true repentance without our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as a result... No one ever truly repents alone. We cannot. We will not. But He will and He can. And so Jesus says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us. You and I, John. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill some righteousness No, all righteousness. Brothers and sisters, how often do we resist Jesus' necessary work in our lives because we believe some righteousness, the righteousness that we do, is good enough. I don't kill, I don't lie, I don't cheat. Good to my wife and my kids, that's enough. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came And he allowed himself to be humiliated, rejected, shamed, and counted among sinners in love in order to fulfill not some righteousness, brothers and sisters, but all that is right according to God's word. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, what Jesus points out repeatedly to his disciples, and then the apostles do that with the church, is that God is holy. And for sinners to be forgiven or made right before God, according to His Word, two things are necessary and two things must be done. 
two things that sinners will not and cannot do for themselves. The first is that according to God's word, someone must pay the price for our sin. Someone must bear the public guilt and condemnation and shame. Someone must bear the wrath of God that we deserve. But there's a second thing that sinners need and they cannot and will not do. For sinners to enter the kingdom of God, they must perfectly love and trust the Lord according to His Word. They must perfectly love and trust the Lord and it must be proven by a perfect and complete obedience. Not to some of God's Word, but to all of God's Word. Every last word. Brothers and sisters, for someone who cannot walk, the only way they can complete a marathon is if someone is willing to push that wheelchair or carry them the entire 26 or 27 miles. Isaiah 53, 14. The prophet Isaiah shows us, and the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, he shows us the servant king that we so desperately need. The servant king who God has promised to send to those who repent and turn from their sin and place their trust in the salvation of the Lord alone. Isaiah 53, 14. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's one. He's going to make many accounted righteous. Two. And he shall bear their iniquities. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't do one or the other. He has come to do both. To bear the shame, but also to do what we will not and cannot do for ourselves. Who can do this? And who is willing to do this? There is only one. The Lord Himself. And so John the Baptist... He knows... His baptism is all about the Lord coming to be with His bride. In her brokenness, in her shame, in her humiliation, in her repentance. And doing for her what she cannot do for herself. How? By carrying her through all of God's word. By making her right before the Lord. Julie and I recently were able to see this National Geographic movie. That's what we watch. We watch National Geographic movies. We saw this National Geographic movie you may have seen called The Rescue. And it was about the 2018 rescue of 12 Thai boys, part of a soccer club, who were caught deep inside a flooded cave in northern Thailand during monsoon season. And after the Thai Navy SEALs show up and the U.S. Air Force Special Tactics team show up and all these volunteers from around the world, the best and the brightest and everybody's there and these boys have been in there from 7 to 12 days, they think, in this little grotto and cave above the water while the rest of the cave is all flooded. At the end of all this, there's only one plan that seems remotely feasible to get them out and to save them. Recreational cave divers have to swim miles underground in the water in these grottos and caves underneath to get to them and then they need to carry them one by one 
with scuba equipment, those miles back under the water, one by one, in order to get them out. And the stress and the burden that comes with this plan is that if there's any resistance whatsoever, these children will die. They'll get stranded and they'll suffocate or the equipment won't work. And so there's only one option that they seem to have, which is to give them anesthesia so that there will be no resistance, so that they can carry these bodies without resistance all the way through for a few hours, two miles underneath this grotto in water to carry them through so that they can carry them and hand them and bring them out. And for each one of those boys, in order for them to be saved, they had to be willing to be injected and given anesthesia and lay their life into the arms of this recreational weekend diver. Now, brothers and sisters, why do I raise this? Because at the end of the day, how many of us are sitting in caves and in darkness resisting Jesus' offer to come in and get us and to carry us? Because we still want control. How many of us are willing to lay our lives in His hand and allow Him to take us through something that is potentially embarrassing, humiliating, or shameful? Are we willing to do so because we trust that He knows what's best for us and that He alone is able to save us in the only place of salvation and sanctification and being made whole, being made right with God, is to take that journey with Him where He carries us every step of the way. A journey that includes sharing His humiliation and His shame and sharing the cross. Well, we see what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist, the holiest, the greatest of prophets. It says at the end of verse 15, then he consented. Then he consented. He released Jesus to let Jesus do what he needed to do. To be the Lord who he was. And to do what he had come to do. To save his bride as only he can. And what's worth noticing, pay careful attention to Jesus' words and the words in which he was able to get John the Baptist to step back and allow him to be baptized. Jesus says to him, let it be so now, it's temporary, for thus it is fitting for us, you and I, John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness. Brothers and sisters, you're not righteous and neither am I. We're not capable of being right with the Lord. 80% of the time, 60% of the time, but not 100% of the time. How is it that Jesus can say to John the Baptist, it's fitting for us, you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. It's through John the Baptist's union with Christ. It's through John the Baptist letting Jesus take charge of his baptism. It's through John the Baptist letting Jesus be the Lord who he is and do what he needs to do. That John the Baptist participates in Jesus' righteousness. And he gets to play a role in the fulfillment of the righteousness of God by which many sinners come to know the Lord and come to be saved. And we see that is what happens in verse 16 through 17. 
John the Baptist didn't do anything. He just yielded and submitted to Jesus and let Jesus do what Jesus needed to do. And the result is one of the greatest revelations of the Trinity in the history of the world and in the scriptures. It's one of the greatest revelations of the love of God for his children in the history of the world and in the history of the scriptures. And John the Baptist got to be a part, not because he accomplished anything, but because he yielded to the command of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the hope for every child of God. Not that we're righteous, not that we're good, not that we're excellent, not many of you were. But we get a chance with Christ to fulfill all righteousness, everything that is right before the Lord. Not because of us, but because of Christ. When we surrender and we allow the Lord to do what he needs to do in our lives. And I believe Matthew was pointing out to that early church, who are you? You're not just another sect of Judaism. You are a people whom the Lord has come and swam underneath miles of water into your cave and into your darkness. You are a community of people who Christ has carried through the waters and brought into life. You are a people who have been cleansed, who have been washed. You are a people whose shame and humiliation He has borne on your behalf. You are a people who He has made right before the Lord. You are a people who are one with Christ. And you are a people who are given the opportunity to fulfill all righteousness with Him, which is about the gospel going out, the good news of Jesus Christ being brought to others. Are we willing, brothers and sisters, to follow in Christ's footsteps? Are we willing to take the gospel to dark places? Are we willing to come to people in their place of brokenness and say, it's not I, it's Christ in me? And are we willing to show them the one who is able to take their shame, their sorrow, and their humiliation and make them into a child of God? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior, what a Lord. Would we by faith, Lord Jesus, like John the Baptist, be willing to yield even to things that are true in your word, but seem wrong to us in our flesh, would we be willing to follow you? Would we be willing to allow you to carry us where you need to carry us, even if it means uncertainty? Because we believe by faith, you are the Lord of God's word, and you have come to do what we cannot do for ourselves. In your name we pray, amen.